Hello, and welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. I'm your host, Gregory Landway. Welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast Community Voices Series. In today's episode, Becca and I are interviewing Kyle Burchard with uh, Integrative Economics. Kyle was a longtime Regen network development team member, supporting the development of our token economics and helping us think about the economics of knowledge generation and how to support the creation of a robust uh, knowledge economy around ecological state, which is such an important part of the vision for region network. Kyle um, is now working on a really interesting project involving the quantification of pollinator habitat, which is a really important ecological function. And uh, Becca and I had the pleasure of getting to do a little bit of a deep dive with Kyle about his project, um, his vision, and, and the work that he's doing. I hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Right. Welcome to the Planetary Regeneration Podcast. Uh, with me is my co-host for today, Rebecca, and our friend and colleague, Kyle Burchard, who um, some folks may recognize this name uh, because it appears on some of our very early Region Network white paper work related to economics. And Kyle was really um, important in supporting our thinking about ecological economics and the economics of data and some other really foundational pieces for as Regen Network was was getting founded. And Kyle's been doing some amazing work on pollinator credits, which I'm really excited to learn more about. Um, Kyle, do you want to give your, a quick intro to yourself and uh, we'll go from there? Yes. Uh, thank you, Gregory. And, and thank you, Becca. Uh, I uh, work in a number of different areas. They all kind of touch uh, on these kind of intersection of agriculture, food systems, and broader landscape management. So everything from, you know, uh, large scale conservation projects to, you know, neighborhood scale uh, food production. And, uh, you know, I uh, became acquainted with Regen Network uh, probably about 2018 or so. And at the time I thought to myself, okay, this, I, I'm gonna build something on this. I'm gonna build something with this tools that Regen is putting together because this is this is something that, I mean, I had been waiting for, you know, in, in terms of like environmental and ecosystem service finance and provision over the many years that I've been following them, you know, have tend to be kind of, uh, have kind of emerged from the think tank world, you know, or from the econ, environmental economics world. And so you have some heavy hitters, you know, you've got people like, you know, Stanford University and the Nature Conservancy and these other really large groups that are doing great work. But, you know, I'm, a, I'm kind of a very small operation here in Portland, Oregon. And uh, I, I think that the tools that, that kind of really got me excited that Regen was working on were really to kind of enable these ground up things that may have not been possible previously. And uh, so more recently, uh, I've been doing work in this area of um, kind of facilitating like the practice of ecologically regenerative practices, let's just say, you know, in, in particular, my, I focused most of my career on things like biodiversity. And, you know, uh, this whole giant world of carbon has taken up a lot of the conversation with things, but I, I, it's great to see there's a growing recognition that, um, you know, maybe carbon 
sequestration, for example, is part of this even larger, you know, kind of ecological reality that we're that we're building. And so my little piece has tended to be uh, biodiversity, whether that's in terms of, you know, animal species on the ground, as well as plants and, you know, food diversity and things like that. And so when this opportunity came up uh, with the Region Community Grant Program, um, I decided that this was a really great time to put into action some of the things that I've been kind of stepping through slowly over the last few years. And I think this is an opportunity to kind of help accelerate this one little idea that we have in terms of pollinator enhancement. Yeah, I, I would hate to even call it little because it's, it is uh, exciting and has big implications when I think about the model itself and not only the, the scientific components that are in place, which we really want to flesh out more for the listeners to understand just how novel um, the remote sensing approaches to, to monitoring um, pollinators, but then the, the community element of it. And I feel like in my experience and in the conservation ag world where, you know, pollinators, I feel like we're just seen as something cute to explore and like icing on the cake. Um, but now it's moving into a matter of urgency um, to figure out how to, you know, have biodiverse management systems. So I get excited because you have the other piece of that puzzle, which is which is how to make this um, live on the ground for these different community members that don't have the bandwidth or the inclination or, or who knows what to implement these different practices. So I feel like the idea of incentivizing you know, pollinator enhanced landscapes is one that just really reverberates both scientifically and just ethically. Like this is, you know, an ethical way to be producing um, things from the land. So I feel like I would love to start with the science of this work. Um, Cause when we think about measuring bugs, <laughs> it's like not the easiest thing. It's not like there's a Jaguar. It's like, how do you measure it? So Kyle, can you explain it to us, break it down? Uh, sure. Well, you know, um, this project, um, I, I, I guess I, I should start by saying that I'm, I'm a, more of a, an accidental scientist, I, I guess you could say. You know, my background is in economics and technology and things like that, and um, I've always tried to bring in these things. And, and one of the things that I've found as working as an economist is we often get brought into projects kind of after they've already decided what they're going to do. You know, we're going to do this, you know, large-scale uh, tidal wetland rest restoration project, bringing the economist, you know, to answer some of these questions. And I found out, you know, getting into things about halfway through, you realize that there just wasn't enough data. You know, there wasn't useful data that we could actually, you know, merge these, you know, the ecosystem services, let's just say, uh, for shorthand, and the economic side and the social aspects of things. So about four or five years ago, I decided like, okay, if the data don't exist, I just need to find a way to make that data appear, you know, uh, I mean, from, you know, using measurement tools and things like that. So I have been working for the last several years on a remote sensing technology. It's based on atmospheric LIDAR. So similar to what you use to measure like clouds and uh, at atmospheric par particles. And um, we're actually adapting this technology to monitor in situ uh, flying insects. So in other words, let's say pollinators is a great example. That's where we kind of got started. Uh, you know, things like seed production, you know, pollinators are indispensable. You can't produce 
almost any, I mean, I guess you can with like corn and stuff like that, but like vegetable crops and things like that, you absolutely have to have pollinators into the picture. But there's really no way to measure the effectiveness of that unless you literally put dozens of people out in the field, you know, with clipboards, keeping handwritten notes about these kinds of things. And so as a result, it kind of leaves a lot of gaps, you know, uh, and, and so I was looking to see if we could build tools to help the ecological researchers and the crop researchers get more, you know, sense organs basically out into, into the field. After doing that for a while, I realized that it wasn't just enough to have a device that you put out there. There still needed to be ways to interpret that. And so a couple of years ago, I started working with uh, Dr. Brittany Barker at uh, the Oregon State University uh, IPM Center, that's Integrated Pest Management. And Brittany works uh, in, I guess her specialty is uh, phenology. So for the listeners aren't, aren't familiar with the term, it just Phenology is the, it deals with the life cycle of organisms. You know, in other words, insects, you know, they require solar energy to, to live. And so, you know, as temperatures increase, biological activity increases, you move through the different life stages. And there's been tons of great work modeling that, you know. So in other words, like a pest or even a beneficial insect, you know, will emerge, you know, from some kind of dormant state. So we're looking here to build tools to kind of model when and where our organisms of interest will be out in the field. And we can use that to, you know, mobilize monitoring efforts. You can use it to, to you know, basically like communicate to growers, let's say. Like we have the bee emergence period right now, do not spray, do not do things that could damage their habitat. The, the idea would be to kind of wrap all of that into this project. You know, basically the motivation was to find, you know, a few pollinator species and then on working landscapes where these species can live, otherwise, you know, where they otherwise wouldn't. Back to something you mentioned a little earlier, Becca, the bird returns program uh, down in California uh, was a big influence here. Um, so we're trying to kind of do something that, you know, little way has been influenced by that but as you mentioned you know monitoring insects is a little more challenging than birds uh, or other things that you can put a, a tracking collar on so that's where i think you know bringing these new remote sensing technologies into the picture can help us expand the number of species we can we can monitor with this kind of stuff yeah, it really sounds like the the technology is being like fully mobilized in this instance for pollinators and you know having your pilot project in place, um, like what kind of cropping systems are we talking about that are being tested in, in this first run? We're going to be working mostly with uh, small fruit. So that's, you know, berries. They're also just because of the proximity, there's, you know, a lot of wine grapes uh, in Oregon's Willamette Valley. Uh, hazelnuts are also, you know, have exploded in the last decade or so in terms of the acreage. Um, so we're, we're looking at these kind of High value, not necessarily large acreage, but they tend to be located in these really diverse landscapes. You know, you've got a nursery, you've got a farm, you've got grass seed, you have parks, you know, and natural areas and, and all those kinds of things all in this, in this area. And it makes it a really interesting challenge because one thing I think that has kind of informed our work here is, is just the notion of bioregionalism. And in many cases, 
we talk about bioregionalism on like a planetary scale, which is important. That's like really necessary. But if you were to look at something like the Cascadia bioregion, that extends from Alaska in the north and west all the way to, you know, Montana, you know, in, in northern California. That's a vast area. And like while that's a cohesive notion at, again, the planetary or continental scale, um, we're trying to kind of bring this down more into, I'm not going to say community because maybe it's a little, even a little bit larger than that, but kind of a, a watershed scale, uh, I think maybe is, is, is what our closest analogy is. But um, bringing things to that scale also lets us bring the community aspects into it as well. You know, it's like, it's, it's like hard to say that like you can get some two people from, you know, a thousand miles apart, you know, the, the scale of the management issues that you're talking about is going to be completely different. So, you know, again, the idea here is that we can maybe make some smaller units, but if we can generalize that, we can then apply them to other places and give communities the tools to sort of do things that are, you know, most effective for their context. Yeah. And, and to me, what I'm thinking about is like, there are two layers of economics that I feel like you all are exploring. There's one layer of economics, which is, pollinators are necessary for these cropping systems in particular, like they're critical and will probably really affect yields and lower some other input costs, like shipping in bees. So it's like, you know, being able to measure yield increases and lower inputs over time. And then the whole other economics, the market, you know, like bringing a pollinator credit to market and thinking about, you know, what that could mean, both in terms of opening up a door to other kind of ecological credits that are not carbon centric and then also exploring really what it takes to to change a community's perspective, which, as you've communicated, that's one of the big blocks is how to work against communities. I wonder if we could start to dig into kind of the, the different layers of economics that you guys are, are exploring right now. Well, yeah. So for the first one, um, in terms of the yield or the biological control of pest species and things like that, it is... I'm going to say understudied relative to, I think, how important it should be. There have been some landmark papers in the last few years that have covered this, but in terms of how an individual operation, you know, a decision maker at a farm level can use to make decisions, I think it's less studied. Um, I do want to point to um, another, uh, it's a, it's a Willamette Valley grower, um, uh, that was recently featured on another podcast, uh, which I can send you the information. It's uh, called Pollination. It's uh, Andoni Malathopoulos, who's a, a professor at Oregon State University who works on pollinator issues. Uh, he interviewed uh, a grower, uh, a blueberry grower, down in the, uh, the Salem, Oregon area. And they do surveys. They survey for natives. And they found that about 10% of their crop, at least, was pollinated by natives. And... You'd be surprised, but there really aren't a lot of data points out there other than that, you know. And so, bringing like a more systematic accounting of those impacts on a, like everywhere, you know, not just one or two test sites, you know, I think is one of the things that we're hoping to you know contribute to that effort. Whether that's through you know again the remote sensing tools, but also just you know to even transition now to this conversation of eco credits, we're really data and information starved. I think maybe maybe not even so much data, but just, you know, knowledge starved with this kind of stuff. And as far as the uh, the eco-credit part, 
I think one of the, the, the term I, I, I've, I've started to think about here is called incidence. Incidence in economic terms is who pays the cost of something. You know, it's usually in, in like taxes and things like that. Like if you pay a sales tax, like the business is the one that collects it and then remits it to the government. The standard model in a lot of ecosystem service markets, at least as far as I can tell, tends to be oriented toward payments to a landowner, let's say. Like, and this is strictly the United States experience. I don't have a lot of international experience, but in the US, the way it typically works is there's a person who owns the land. They have title to the land, and therefore the benefits of everything that happens to it accrue to that entity. But there's a whole lot of other people who are involved with producing and provisioning ecosystem services. You know, I'm not going to try, I'm not going to say, just throw the landowners out of the, of the equation. That's not where I'm going. But you have, you know, people who are consultants, you have neighbors, you know, this is a landscape level issue, especially when we're talking about organisms that move, you know, I mean, it's one thing to say, like, here's this tree, it's on my land, it's sequestering carbon, therefore, I should be the one who gets paid for this, you know, biodiversity is just a landscape level complex problem, or not problem, but challenge. So, One of the things we're going to be exploring here with the eco-credit part of this whole project is where, if not at the landowner level, where should we intervene here in terms of sharing the, you know, the funding, the resources or the knowledge or whatever it takes to make things happen, like, in other words, to get us the best outcome, which in our case, we're kind of broadly defining as an increase in the amount of habitat, you know, that is suitable for pollinators an increase in the quality of habitat, and an improvement in the connectivity of the habitat. Those are kind of the three major things that we're looking at. Because you can, you know, you can plant 1,000 acres of habitat, and if it's not in the right place, you know, what have we done? You know, we could have put those resources to a different use. And uh, again, those are sort of some open questions here as far as where do we target these payments? Do we maybe, like, we need to actually pay the nursery stock growers, you know, maybe that's where the bottleneck is, or maybe it's with the community monitoring part, or to move it into like some of the regen ledger related things. Maybe it's this aspect of like what I'm, I'm the term I'm using is like community computation. You know, these phenology and climate models are really complex. There aren't very many resources to run them today. So, for the more technically inclined folks, maybe who want to contribute, but they maybe they don't live in Oregon, or maybe they don't know the first thing about, you know, getting out in the field and doing stuff. This is another opportunity. So again, we're trying to bring all of these people into the whole conversation. If I could um, hop in here, Kyle, this is all really exciting. And I'm curious if you have, I, I'm, I mean, my sense is this is probably sort of a living question, um, but I'm curious if you have any intuition about what these eco credits are going to look like, you know, who who is going to be purchasing them? How will their value be derived? You know, I, I think there's sort of like, I guess there's a branching pattern in the conversation. And one is around the assetization of, you know, whether it's a commodity, commodification, or sort of like a service contract, et cetera, et cetera. There's a number of different ways that this could probably be parsed. And maybe it's Maybe there'll be experiments across that spectrum. And then there's the, you know, and then there's the science. And I'm also interested, if we have time, potentially to ask more about the models that are underpinning this 
how they're being generated, the statistical methods that are being used to think about this, all of those things I think are very interesting. But sort of at the moment, since we're in sort of uh, economics land right now, I, I'd be curious, yeah, just to hear your intuition more than anything about, you know, who the buyers are um, and what do they want and how is your intuition or understanding of that driving the design of these eco-credits, these pollinator credits as a new asset type? Sure. Well, the, the funding model for any kind of conservation or enhancement, it's, I think it's always been a patchwork. You know, um, you have many funders out there in the world, uh, you know, I guess the public funding is sort of one of the, the main ones that we look at, like the USDA's Nat Natural Resource Conservation Service, you know, provides, I, I can't remember, I, this was actually for, for Regen, I think I should know the, the answer, you know, something like a billion dollars a year or something like that, um, quote unquote, conservation practices. Um, many of those, I, I would kind of say are focused more on like, soil and infrastructure kinds of things and not biodiversity or habitat enhancement. But um, that, mo that money flows uh, through NRCS. Uh, it, throws, it flows through regional conservation districts, you know, soil, water, and, and other resources. Um, it also comes from, I, I would say, more um, general purpose organizations like the Nature Conservancy, let's say, or Defenders of Wildlife. Uh, it comes through, um, you know, very specific pollinator-oriented organizations that bridge, you know, science and, and advocacy and funding and things like that. So, each one of these actors, uh, and, and of course, also, you know, local, just people, just you and me, you know, anybody who's who's interested and, and who's committed to supporting this, you know, is another um, potential buyer, so to speak. But. One thing about all of these different entities is each of one has their own sort of set of priorities and they, their own like requirements and their own list of things that they're going to fund and things they're not going to fund. I mean, if you, you know, applying for grants, it's always you have to kind of check off some boxes like, okay, we'll pay for this, but we won't pay for that. But some of those things are really essential. You can't like separate the two, you know? And so what I think the eco-credit kind of gives us a chance, it's like a vehicle to, if we kind of imagine, like visualize an eco-credit as this sort of like a bucket with like three or four or five or six different like chambers in it. And we bring in one chamber from the public pot, so to speak. And we bring in, you know, we fill in another piece of that credit with, you know, community-driven stuff. That lets us get into some really interesting stuff like, you know, with like what Gitcoin is doing with, you know, the public goods type funding stuff um, where you can create matching pools for particular activities. Um, so I'm kind of looking at, at, at the, at the eco credit that we're looking here is kind of within the boundaries of what regen is working on. Um, but as a tool to sort of like leverage all of these disparate funding sources into something that might get us a little bit more than if we had just taken money, you know, from NRCS and we could put a hedgerow. But what if we got money from NRCS and we got it from another community-related organization, philanthropic dollars, whatever, that lets us hire a scientist, you know, a, you know, a scientist in residence, you know, to actually 
kind of develop, uh, you know, monitoring protocols and other kinds of things to make this happen? Or, you know, does it fund a grad student, you know, at OSU or something like that? But it also lets us account for where those resources came from and where they could go to. And, you know, the, the, the digital aspect of all of this stuff, I think, kind of lets us, it, it opens up a lot of avenues here in terms of, you know, the eco-credit is almost like a, it, it's like this neuron that's like collecting all this stuff and then it's sending it, you know, to somewhere else. So um, that might be a little different than what some people, you know, are talking about strictly like here's a dollar payment to a landowner for carbon or whatever. And um, I think it's this, this lets us give some, you know, kind of latitude, you know, for, a, you know, a regional effort to do this stuff to sort of get a little more um, flexible, I guess, with, with what they're doing with the funding, but at the same time, maintaining the integrity, you know, like in terms of, you know, we're monitoring things or, you know, we're doing like a pollinator survey, you know, at some, you know, set schedule or something like that, that lets us kind of measure, again, back to the science uh, in a way that is defensible, you know, and that we can use for, for kind of future efforts. I'm curious to double to double in on this, like how um, how value will be derived with remote sensing. You know, thinking like, will there be kind of tiered approaches, or you know, are you thinking more in the line of like a, a practice based um, route, where like because you know that certain practices will, you know, kind of check mark check box on what sorts of pollinator results you'll have. A, maybe a, a layer more specific about how that might be valued? Sure. Well, I think uh, one of the, th the important things to consider is, is I, I'm starting to, to think about this more in, in like a sort of a cyclical sense. In other words, we need information about kind of where we are today. And we use that information to, as a, you know, a community of whatever size and constitution, you know, decide like, where do we want this to be? You know, like I mentioned earlier, we're looking at more habitat, higher quality habitat, and more connected habitat. Those things are all measurable, I think, at some level from at some remove, you know, like remote sensing wise, like you can look at land cover through satellite or aerial imagery and things like that. But you also need to bring in the actual, like what we're, we're looking at here are pollinators, right? So we need to be able to survey them. So I think... Maybe one way to look at this uh, could be some of the underlying technology, which we haven't gotten to at this point, but I think that's sort of a, a logical next step here, is to create tools that let us kind of tell us what we know and what we need to know, you know, and, and kind of try to close that gap between those two poles. The one challenge is, is like in many cases, like in temperate climates, you kind of get only one chance a year to do this. You know, it's like pollination happened and it's not going to happen again for another 12 months. So I think one of the ideas here is that maybe we can learn from this, this first season that we're doing this and kind of figure out, okay, now that we know uh, these things, like here's where the gaps are and keep that running tally of things. And I think many cases like research tends to happen in, again, I'm, a, I'm not the only person who's ever said this, but they happen in silos, you know, like a person works on this issue, they publish once a year or whatever, and that's it, you know, I mean, that's important in terms of the progress of human knowledge, but unless that gets used 
you know, for further work, it's, you can't, you can't do much more with it, you know? So one of the things that, that I'm hoping to do here is, is to try to, um, there's a, a survey, an annual survey that happens up here in Oregon. I, I believe it's the Oregon Bee Project. Don't, don't quote me completely on that. I might have it wrong. But they actually have this grid. You know, it's the state of Oregon. They put out a grid. And they actually um, highlight areas that have not been surveyed recently. You know, so in other words, like if, if this, hasn't been, this place hasn't been visited in two or three years, like we need somebody out there. We need more eyes out there. I think there may be some opportunity here in terms of the eco credit side. Again, like I, like I mentioned earlier, rather than just saying like the landowner gets it, there are other people involved with here. So maybe we get the incentives toward visiting things that are under visited and need to be visited. So I think that's another thing that we could be working on too. It seems like there's a lot to to play around with in terms of how you capture and and commodify. And I feel like I get excited in particular when I think about about pollinators and like how over time you're getting more and more value, like the ecosystem as a whole is getting more and more value as those as those numbers become stable and all of the macrofauna that's that's living off of those insects build. So I I can't help but love the idea of kind of almost a badge system, you know, where like the more years that you're having that, you know, that pollinator friendly landscape in place, that more that credit value goes up or the extra, you know, star on your badge you get because that buildup is means so much, you know, um, more than just kind of like a one siloed year at a time. Yeah, that's absolutely. Really cool. That's great. Yeah. I think the ability to be flexible here around continuous payment approaches in which the the we use some defi building blocks and stream payments that are that yeah increase over time or are variable depending on a set of clear performance i think there's some really interesting economic primitives to think through and and design and i think there's a lot of opportunity basically to to break out of, especially in these circumstances, to really be thinking completely outside of the mold of the classical offset credit. But who knows, maybe that also is integrated in some way as a part of the underpinning value, where you say a municipality can quantify the sort of negative habitat impact of its municipal footprint or something, and then think about the larger life shed that it's nested in, in the bigger bioregional context and say, we're going to underpin, you know, sort of like a, a payment or an offset, but it's also part of a bigger piece where we have a larger goal than just offsetting. And we have a, you know, we have a landscape scale regeneration goal. And so therefore, if you achieve these milestones or these metrics or this larger integration, you essentially unlock these bonuses. And, you know, I'm also enormously excited about the opportunities to be thinking about this hybrid public infrastructure, public accounting, crypto enabled, actual municipal integration, right? Where taxes, you know, it's like, what's the value of this? Oh, maybe you get a tax break. Maybe you're getting, uh, who knows, maybe this integrates with some sort of local, maybe, you know, there's a like a local currency integration or something that that the credit unions are, you know, buyers of 
of last resort for for certain credits in order to achieve pieces and they're lending off of I mean I think there's sort of like a an opportunity for an integrative approach to this to, to sort of problem solving this and I think there's an opportunity to evolve that over time so to I guess to not get too um, to iterate towards a, a very interesting inter integrative approach, but at the beginning to just sort of simply say like, here, this is the pollinator credit. <laughs> it's very simple. You purchase it and it means this and, you know, and it has this value and here's the person who's going to buy it. And, but that it can kind of like integrate and weave into something that's much more innovative and probably more, resonant or harmonious with the actual ecological processes that are taking place, which some of the simpler units may not, you know, yeah. the, just a simple commodity doesn't always jive with the real ecological reality. Well, that's a real, I mean, I, years ago, I, I did work on a, a brief project. This was a school related project, but, um, you know, the city of Portland has, I think about 10,000 acres of natural areas that are, you know, kind of interspersed through the state, you know, or the city, uh, the largest of which is Forest Park, which is I can almost see from my house. Um, so the other 3,500 acres or so is, are, are, you know, kind of in different areas. Um, I actually had a conversation once with uh, one of the Portland Parks and Recreation people who worked on that. And there's probably an equal area of just city parks, you know, as well. Um, and they are not managed for that. But yet, we live in a, an environment where the stuff, you know, like it's, you just kind of put it out there and it's going to grow, you know, it's not, that's not the highest maintenance stuff. But I had a conversation not too long ago with somebody um, who works in the pollinator space. And um, I think expanding the number of people out there who are looking for these kinds of things is a really good way to do this. In other words, if you're, Again, if you're a berry grower, you have people out in the field all the time. You know, it's like you don't need to do this once every five year survey. You know, if you can get tools into people's hands and the knowledge into people's heads, where somebody who's out there anyway can snap some photos, can take some footage, can grab some more information about it. It's one of those, I think, the increasing returns that are possible from the knowledge is is staggering i mean i think if we were able to harness this and um i get really excited too about that kyle because we think about like all the great pollinator like think about like urban pollinator programs throughout the united states and like there are folks that are already doing some really wonderful work and a lot of them are based you know in like schools and you know already have really deep community ties it feels like the the missing linkages there are are funding aka market and incentivization and then science you know technology and more funding and it seems like it would really unlock the potential that's already there with all of these great pollinator programs um which begs the question and something that i wanted wanted to leave a minute time for was i know that there are some other um pollinator credits kind of moving in the ecosystem that you might have connected with and wondering kind of what your view is of others exploring this, because um, I see your approach as being really balanced and, um, you know, aware of both market and science. What's what's your perspective on others that are moving on this? Well, I think <clears throat> I think the the one thing I, I I think about a lot here is is just the trade offs in terms of um, like the local 
context, I think, is really important. You know, like, I'm here I am in the Pacific Northwest. You know, some, the things that will work here are not necessarily the ones that are going to work in upstate New York or, you know, Temecula, California, or, or places like that. And so um, I think there's always going to be some kind of regional variation in terms of the, what's the highest priority activity, you know, monitoring this, monitoring that. You know, in some cases, people I've spoken with, their approach is, we just want to get the habitat there. That's like the, the first thing. If we don't have that, like you don't have anything, which is, I think, very true. Um, the approach that I'm taking to it, and I don't know if this is different or I don't, I don't know that it's, it's some great insight or anything, but I think the big missing ingredient with a lot of things that we're doing is just the know-how. It's like when you get up, like if you, you know, in your work, the things that you do every day, you know what you're doing. You get up and you just, you, you, you do it. You don't have to like, it's not this cognitive burden. Um, but a lot of what we're talking about right now is really not something that people do every day. You know, this, this a friend of mine who works with the Pollinator Conservation Organization told me once about rolling out this really, you know, kind of ambitious habitat project on a farm in California. And they came back a year later and it was just like nothing. It was like overgrown, like nothing was working the way it meant. It was meant to work. And I think it's because that person who was trying to enact this plan, they just didn't have that know-how. And so I think what I'm trying to do here is kind of position the information in a way that like, okay, do I get like a an alert on my phone or whatever like device I'm using? That like I need to be doing this thing today. I think maybe if I were to distill it, it's like the term practice kind of implies that you're doing it all the time. People, it's very easy, and I, I'm a classic case study in this. And like if if I can't make something a daily activity, the likelihood of me doing it a year from now is very slim. So I think it's just building up this kind of practice and the tools that we can maybe bring to the table to have people make this like an everyday thing and not just a once a year, you know, or whenever I get to it or whenever I remember it. Um, so I think maybe the, the thing that I'm looking at here is sort of creating this like kind of continuous model of knowledge, like deployments rather than something you do every once in a while. I think that keeping in practice is probably the underlying dynamic, I think, of what we're trying to do here. Um, as, a, as a final question um, before um, Gregory rounds things out, what is the um, what are the feelings on the ground, like with producers that you're working with, talking to? Um, are they are they loving it, but um, are harder to convince on the um, follow through? Like, what's your feeling or kickback from producers? Well, I mean, one <laughs> there's a couple of things. I, I'm I'm you know again I've been following things like um, alternative economic stuff and community currencies and and stuff like that for quite some time. So for me, it's like second nature to talk about that stuff. Um, I do think that, you know, for many reasons, uh, that sort of digital nature, the, the crypto nature of, of this is somewhat foreign to people. And I think that that probably affects how we, we, we approach it. I mean, people do understand it. I'm not, I'm not saying that like nobody knows what crypto is or, or anything like that. So that I think has been 
an interesting conversation. The other thing is, um, you know, a lot of the, the, the farmers that we're looking to, to bring on board right now are, are they're conventional farmers, so they aren't necessarily tapped into conservation. There is a lot of interest in it, but there's a lot of hurdles as well. Like I, I mentioned earlier, like, there's all this funding that comes from NRCS that can, you know, enhance habitat at very, you know, minimal cost to you as a, as a grower. But it's a painstaking process. People just don't think it's worth their time to change the status quo. Um, and so I, f- I think that our, our approach to that is to, is to maybe start from the just, the, just, I guess, the kind of economic part as far as, like, your production costs. Like, can we improve your pollination? Like, that's the case that we, we tend to have to make. You know, it's like this, this does have some kind of benefit, you know, materially to you as a decision maker. The, uh, I mean, those are, I think, the biggest things definitely share out those, those papers that you mentioned, I feel like are, you know, are kind of tucked away in scientific holes, but they are papers that point to, to the many production um benefits so we'll have to sh- we'll have to share those out on um on open science discord channel and and get that info spread more yeah, yeah that definitely makes sense yeah but i mean i think in general everybody like kind of knows you know like what the again the right thing to do but it's just it's the force of habit uh it's this notion that like okay these benefits may not materialize for a few years and so what happens while you're doing that i mean it's that similar you know enough to the carbon space as well so i i think you know again coming back to this like what are the critical bottlenecks that are preventing this from happening and and it's not always just like a dollar sometimes it's this kind of uh, this perception of risk like if i change this practice if i don't spray like i normally do you know what's gonna what's gonna happen um so I think kind of, again, closing that cycle of, you know, here's what we do, here's the result, you know, the consequence of the action, and, you know, what does it mean, you know, for you as a grower, as a consultant or whoever? Yeah, great. Well, I think that's all really thought-provoking, I think. I, I um, Just to kind of wrap up as we're getting towards the end of the hour here, yeah, Kyle, I mean, I'm... I, I'd love it if you could leave us just with, um, you know, if if there's specific ways that the community can engage with what you're working on, or you know, if you if you'd like to point people towards specific resources or, you know, um, opportunities to just intersect with your work uh, and this pollinator credit. If there's other people working on, for instance, pollinator habitat stuff, you know, where would they find you and and what resources might you offer? Yeah, well, I think one of the main things that we're looking for in terms of this project and making it happen is um, is the treatment and the management and the and the upkeep of ecological information. Um, you know, there's a lot of of like say open science repositories, you know, for data or for code and things like that. We don't necessarily have that expertise in-house. There are some, actually, a fellow uh, community funding uh, grantee um, are working on some of these things. Like, can, you know, how, how do we kind of bring the data, you know, in, in into this larger, you know, region world? In terms of the work, I, the, the, con- the, the concept that I think I might have put when we were 
originally advancing this idea is this notion of dynamic conservation. Um, conservation is often thought of as this sort of fixed thing. You know, we have this protected area or we, you know, we do a project and then we're done. Given the realities of climate and given what's happening in the world, um, we also need this sort of intermediate work. You know, that's where the dynamic part comes in. We need places to experiment. We need places to, you know, maybe it's critical this year that we have this corridor, you know, for pollinators or for other wildlife, but maybe in other years it might not be necessary. So I think, um, you know, that, that comes down to this question of about what we're working on as far as bringing, you know, farmers and, and, and people who are managing the land into the picture. As far as other, other things, I mean, we would really like to um, just offer some, uh, we're going to be posting some of the science work pretty soon. Uh, and again, these are sort of like kind of tools that people can use to delineate their own management areas. I think that's one of the critical things that we're trying to produce here with the project. In other words, if you are in a, in, in a Michigan or you're in some place, we can give you the tools of you know, climate data and other kinds of models that we can that you can use then to say like, okay, here, here's a, a, a discrete area in our landscape that we can manage for pollination and then kind of provide, you know, kind of scripts or other kinds of algorithms that people can use then to kind of roll that out in their own landscape. So that's sort of like kind of our next step in this project is to get those models out to the public. Um, we're also doing things like uh, back to the phenology modeling that I mentioned earlier, you know, can we, build tools to predict two, three weeks out, you know, where we're likely to see pollinators emerge so that you can mobilize and get people out there into the field and actually measure what's happening. So those are kind of like the two, I think, next steps for this project. So uh, we're, 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 we're not fully rolled out in terms of our communications strategy, which is always a problem for me, but um, uh, those are sort of the next steps here. And so I definitely welcome people to to, to stay tuned on that kind of stuff. Yeah, as do we. We'll be watching really, really closely and following on all the things, including Twitter, and then wanting to to prompt all to check out our Built on Region Network um, gallery of partners and projects that are moving and looking forward to, to Kyle having a profile up and being able to clue in to their needs and what's moving and updates. And that's going to be on notion.so backslash region network backslash built dash on dash region. So be checking that out. And Kyle, it was just great to hear about your project and super excited. The pollinator nerd in me is really excited uh, to see this move uh, and really glad that we could support this and mobilize it. Absolutely. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for hopping on, Kyle. Uh, have a have a great day and looking forward to continuing to watch the pollinator credits um, evolve and come to market. It's very exciting. Definitely. Take care. Okay. Ciao. Bye.